Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast, vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Evoking History. When I decided to do my own history podcast based on some of the works friends of mine, such as Trey Wisecarver and the Outlaw History Podcast, I knew who I wanted my first guest to be. This man is a full professor at my alma mater, Murray State University, and also a good friend of mine and my mentor as I made my way through undergraduate, Dr. David Pizzo. How are you doing? Today? How are you? I'm great. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm very pumped about this podcast. I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you. I'm very excited about it, too. Uh, so what I wanted to start was, for those of you who are unfamiliar with your your work, how did you get your start? Uh, in terms of history or what I look at specifically, or maybe a little of both? A little of both. I was thinking, you know, where you got your degree and how Yeah, you- for sure, for sure. In terms of the, the, the dream to be a history professor, I'm a rare animal who sort of already as a young teenager knew what I wanted to do, and I'm actually doing it, which, as I tell my advisees, is not the norm. So way back in middle school, I had... Uh, in sixth grade and eighth grade, and then again in high school, there was a guy who had a doctorate who was teaching in high school. I had some amazing history teachers. I feel like that's the story for a lot of people. You know, that's what got them in. So I had some exemplary history teachers in the school system that was eh, maybe not so great, but they were sort of shining lights. So that kind of put the hook in me. And, you know, my dad was really into it. It was sort of history was sort of his hobby. You know, he's a he's in medicine. So I kind of kind of got it, I think, a little bit passively that way. So I was already interested. So when I got to college, I went to Duke, um, which was actually in my hometown, which was actually pretty rare. I was one of the only people there that was actually from that community. Uh, I started studying German history because I had done German in high school. To me, it was like the cool language that not, almost not, every, you know, most people were taking French or Spanish, you know, and I, I'm not going to lie. I'd see things like Indiana Jones. It's sort of, you know, I'm that definitely at age group like you. I'm very much Gen yes. X. You know, I was born in 77. So, I, you know, I, the, sort of the Nazi thing and seeing them in movies had sort of made me interested. Um, so then, as I said, I went to Duke and I took a bunch of history classes with people like uh, Claudia Kunz. Uh, and then, you know, as I was doing that, I started thinking more and more, you know, I... As much as I like German history, uh, and I did like it a lot, you know, I'd really, actually to back up for just one moment, you know, I went and I studied abroad when I was 19, so my sophomore year, and I lived in Berlin for that whole year, and so that really put the hook in me and made me very, very much into German history and, you know, really expanded my knowledge way beyond, you know, Nazism, which, to be fair, was only 12 years of a several hundred year arc, so I learned a lot about, you know, the division, the Cold War, et cetera, et cetera. So I was already into German history, and... When I was a junior, I 
a couple things happened. One, I took some classes in global history with uh, a couple of people who do South Asia. So that I found super fascinating. I really wanted to somehow connect German history and global history, which, as we're going to talk about, is literally the project I'm working on right now. So it's oh, cool. come full circle. Um, so, uh, and then I read Sven Linkvist's Exterminate All the Brutes. That book is incredibly grim. It's this very short, tight, sort of one-part travelogue, one-part literary analysis, and one-part historical context of Heart of Darkness is what it is. So uh, I read that book, and I was just stunned because, you know, I'd read Heart of Darkness, and I knew colonialism, I knew something about it. But one, I, you know, I had not quite grasped the layers of horror that are represented. But most importantly for my career, I really knew very little about the German Empire in Africa. Most Germans barely know anything about that period. Indeed, later when I'd said, yeah, I read about German Africa, they'd say, oh, you mean Rommel? No, not Rommel. The, the, the other time, the time before right. that. So that book and its discussion of the Herero genocide, you know, which is also happens to the Nama, this apocalyptic situation in Deutsch Sudwest in Southwest Africa, told me, like, oh, well, I can combine my interest in German history and my interest in global history and do this. And when I got onto that in sort of the mid to late 90s, uh, not to sound like the guy who was like, I like the band before anyone else liked the band, but that wasn't really a big topic. There was not that many works on it, other than some stuff produced in East Germany, which had its own issues, you know, sort of back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, now there's been an explosion of that, as we can talk about if you want, we talk about after the imperialist imagination. And in some ways, my career spans precisely the period in which German history became much more global, or some colonialism sort of erupted through the floorboards, an industry that was sort of from a literary standpoint, kind of post-colonial theory, but then people also circled back and looked at the events. So now, you know, the German Empire is actually quite well covered uh, compared to when I started doing this. But, you know, anytime I go to the, you know, I was just in the German Studies Association annual conference in Portland back in late September. Uh, you know, it was stunning to me how many panels about either colonialism or Germany in the global, Germany in Asia, Germany in this, Germany in that, which was much needed. I mean, German history was popular, or remains popular, but I think in some ways it existed in a silo. You know, it was sort of uh, Nazism, as I'm sure we'll talk about, was such a huge black hole. It sort of sucked everything into it. Uh, and things tended to sort of go one way. And, you know, I understand a lot of people had, you know, even in genocide studies, this hesitancy to compare the Holocaust to anything else. So for a long time, it just sort of floated. Or if they did talk about Germany, they talked about, you know, most of the time when the German Empire or where when Nazism is being compared to another empire, it's compared to the Germans. The Germans are being right. compared to the Germans. And there's utility in that. We can talk about that if you want to. But increasingly, I have seen all kinds of valences and overlap and interconnections that are much more complicated than that and much more what, you know, to use the current buzzword, transnational, uh, particularly with the United States. And that's not just because of the era we live in currently, but there's been a lot of new scholarship, you know, things like the James Whitman, Hitler's American model or the recent Brendan Sims biography of Hitler, which is gigantic because we definitely didn't want another biography of Hitler. So um, it's quite good, though. It really makes clear. Adam Tooze also talks a lot about this in Wages of Destruction, this central obsession of Hitler and other members of the leadership with the United States, both as sort of model to emulate, but as future madness they would have to take down, which I know sounds like a Captain America movie, but, you know. <laughs> uh, sure. So even, even the scholarship of the Third Reich, I think, has moved in a direction where it's recognizing these interconnections and relationships with the wider world. Um which was long overdue, in my opinion. And again, we can talk about that more. So that's a bit about, oh, oh, it's, I, I, 
sorry, to back up a second, I went to UNC Chapel Hill for my graduate degree, so I should add that briefly. Uh, and originally, Chapel Hill was my backup school just because, you know, it's a great university, but I wanted to go somewhere else. I was from the Triangle. But Christopher Browning came. I remember the call to go, Christopher Browning's coming. And so uh, Christopher R. Browning lived in a Pacific Lutheran had never actually had grad students. You know, he had stayed there for most of his, for the sort of first two thirds, maybe of his career, maybe even longer. And so he came to UNC. And so I was the first grad student he had from start to finish. And, you know, of course, he works very much on the Third Reich. That's absolutely what he does. He's bored down deep on that and produced an enormous amount of scholarship, but was very, very supportive. I mean, he was an amazing doctor, father, mentor in terms of, uh, you know, my attempt to connect the Third Reich and German history more broadly with these other sort of colonial and imperial processes and trends. So he was very, very supportive of that project, uh, which is good. You know, not every Germanist is, but I'll just leave it at that. I'm not going to name names. So I think I was quite blessed, particularly with the graduate degree I got and the mentor I had. Um, you know, I spent time both in Germany again, and then I did field work in Tanzania. So I was in both South Africa for uh, a different thing. I was teaching for the honors program and Tanzania for most of 2005. So um, I'll never forget when the grad school at UNC said, man, you don't need to go all these places. You should just finish. Like they really wanted me to finish. You don't need to sure. go to Africa. No, I really absolutely need to go to Africa. I cannot be a 19th century style historian who writes about Africa and never even sets foot in it. But right. they didn't quite, quite understand this. And I think that's changed a little bit, too. I, my colleagues reminisce about this. In that era, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there wasn't necessarily much understanding of what it took to create a transnational project in which you had to go to, you know, multiple archives in different countries. And there was an oral history component and, and, and. So it was a bit challenging. And I kind of had to cobble it together myself. But ultimately, you know, I got it done. And I think that's why I got the job I got. I was interviewing for Africa Jobs world jobs and Europe jobs. Uh, and you see that more and more in job descriptions. I'm sure you're going to have a whole show about the job market at some point. Uh, or the lack thereof, yeah. Or the lack thereof, you know, must teach Germany and preferably also <laughs> gender, South Asia, the Pacific, and the Asian yeah. world. Like these insane ads. And like the training is not keeping pace with what people are asking for. But I get it. You know, in a department like Murray State where I am, you know, I do teach some global, some Africa, uh, some Europe, you know, some Germany. So uh, not every department is like that. You know, I'm not in the department of 40 where everyone gets to teach a seminar on, you know, Prussia on one Tuesday in 1848. I don't really get to do that, but sure. Uh, okay. So that was a bit meandering, but that's sort of my trajectory from starry eyed middle schooler who dreamed of being a historian who learned about Nazis to, <laughs> you know, full professor who is writing about Nazis. So I guess maybe I can move that. The circle is now complete. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> <laughs> and now your failure is complete. So um, you did touch on. It. a Yeah. You did touch on a lot of things that I want to come back to. Yeah, for sure. Of course. <laughs> idea of the Sonderbeg and, and you know, because um, that comment you made about this kind of scholarship about German colonialism being uh, much more represented than when you started and For sure. I'm not a member of the um, German Historical Society or whatever the specific name of the society yeah. was that you mentioned. Um, for obvious reasons, I don't do German sure. history. I just had the benefit of having you and also a wonderful professor here at uh, Marquette, Dr. Peter Stoudenmayer. And yeah, sure. so I know about it more than, you know, the average Americanist candidate. Um, and... and 
you're one of the reasons that I got into Africa, so that's why I wanted to talk about this specifically with you. Yeah, for sure. But I, I wonder how much of that, and you mentioned siloing, and that is a very big issue within the discipline itself, not just yeah, it within the academy, but bridging that um, gap between the academy and the general public. And that's one of the things that I hope to address with this podcast. But I wonder how much of that sense of German history as a colonial empire before the, the Nazi regime is getting out there. There are, if you do a g quick Google search, which I did while you were talking, there are a few articles that pop up on like the Smithsonian sure. foreign policy. But again, those are, are more, I don't want to call them niche, you know, institutions or, or niche media sources, but I don't know that it is as widespread as it needs to become. Yeah, I don't think it's really like so many things we do, Ben. I don't think it's disseminated very widely in the reading public, just sure. because it would be so hard to displace World War II and the Civil War. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which are pretty for much real. the all and be, be all and end all for, for a lot of sort of uh, laban, I guess you would call them. Um, yeah, there, there's a bit of awareness with the, I think, the Hero genocide. Sometimes because of things like Gravity's Rainbow, you know, the Thomas Pynchon book, there's some random ways it enters the discourse. And Germans, maybe that's part of the thing, Germans are certainly more aware of it now because there have been a bunch of debates about compensation. There was this awful debate where the Berlin Zoo wanted to have Africans in a fundraiser dancing and people pointed out, you know, you had actual people in zoos a century ago. Yeah. That was a big shit show. And then, of course, Germany has a larger and more vocal Afro-Deutsche community now than it used to. You know, uh, you know, a place like France, of course, the North African communities like Algerians, of course, have been there uh, even longer and are much larger. So their presence has been felt for a long time. But it was sort of a new thing for Afro-Deutsche populations to be asserting themselves and, and adding to the discourse on these debates. So Germany, you know, I still wouldn't say every German knows where they had. Well, I think most of them are where they had an empire. I don't really know a lot about it. But yes. Germans themselves are certainly much more aware than they were even, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Largely because people of color have sort of forced their way into the debate, whether it's Namibians in Namibia wanting compensation for the terrible thing that happened to them, or, or as I said, uh, populations of the African diaspora in Germany itself. So, yeah, Americans, eh, I don't think Americans are that aware of imperialism in general. I mean, even when you talk about Heart of Darkness, you're like, you know, Leopold, they're like, what? You know, okay, yeah. Belgium, Belgium? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, I think that older... Yeah. I think my our parents' generation, as demonstrated by Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, you know, has that line about the Belgian Congo. They have, because they live in the tail end of empire, and you're, mm -hmm. we're watching The Crown right now, you're saying that, is it sort of folding up. So the boomers have some awareness of it, but I think the generation for them, very little actually. So I don't think it's just the German empire that's kind of vanished from the memory hole. I think it's kind of all of them. I mean, they sort of know the British empire is a thing because of the foundational myths about the American yes, Republic. Exactly. You know, they, they're aware of that. And they probably know France was an empire because of Napoleon selling us half the country or something, mm -hmm. you know, some sort of, but that's kind of the end of it. So I don't, you know, I would love if more people knew about it, but I take it as somebody's par for the course. I mean, Portuguese empire, we could go even the Italians, we could go even deeper. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, almost all of that has vanished. But I would say that colonialism in this country just isn't that well understood. You know, it's very alive and well in Britain and France where they're having these awful, mostly forgive me, conservative attempts to sort of rehabilitate empire. And I could give you many examples of that. Oh, we're going to touch on Michael. One. Oh, I bet we are. Anything to do with Michael Gove. 
you know, the Secretary of Education for a long time. I think he's back in government now. I'm sure he is on the boards. He's quite conservative and laments how historians have ruined young people's idea of World War One. or, uh, uh, you know, you tweeted me the other day that, that thing that I'm sure we'll get to about how the German Empire did a lot of good, and I have a lot to say about that. Yeah, yeah. That's... Uh, and we shouldn't, feel, we shouldn't feel so bad about it. Come on, guys. That's a, <laughs> that's a European-wide phenomenon. That, I mean, the comparable analogy here, of course, is anything to do with slavery. Yes. You know, Bill O'Reilly, when Michelle Obama said, it's amazing, I live in a house built by slaves, he's like, yeah, but they were well-paid and loved it. I mean, that's just... So we have that, too, just for our we all do. sort of internal forms of what I would say in many ways is an internal form of colonialism in terms of post-slavery apologia, but, you know. I also think that our memory as Americans of colonialism is complicated by the alliance of anti-colonial movements with civil rights. So oh, 100%. Creates, yes. This creates that weird association that is uncomfortable for, for people of the boomer generation. It is. The other thing that adding another layer on top of that is, of course, that anti-colonial nationalism, particularly in the case of a country that rhymes with Bliet Blom, <laughs> yeah. you know, the train wreck exactly. that was Vietnam meant that for us, what for locals in many ways was a war of decolonization was both sort of a Cold War struggle and a national tragedy, which it was exactly. a disaster. So I think for us, uh, I don't think most Americans even think it's Vietnam as a colonial war. Whereas oh, I, I doubt think it. In many ways very... it's like the, yeah, the quintessential colonial war. So as you're absolutely right. This intersection, and that's a fascinating story in of itself between civil rights and anti-colonial nationalism, but then the Cold War dynamic culminating in one of the stupidest things we've ever done as a society, it's certainly most destructive, um, has really muddied the waters considerably. Again, as, uh, I think if you said to most Americans, if you portrayed it to most Americans, Vietnam as a war of decolonization or as a colonial war par excellence, I think they'd be sort of, what? We were fighting communism. Like, okay, yeah. sure. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but, yeah, exactly. And the McNamara talks about that a bunch of fog of war. Uh, you know, the people, the decision makers viewed it through that paradigm. That was one of the problems. Sure. Whereas Ho Chi Minh and his, you know, circle, they, I mean, they were obviously aware of that dynamic and doing the best they could to instrumentalize it and use it to their advantage. But for them, this was third war in a row. <laughs> yeah. Japanese, then the French, then the Americans, followed by then, of course, a war in Cambodia and a war against China. And it's just one after the other trying to assert autonomy and to some degree sort of hegemony over that region but america's not aware of any of that so yeah speaking of which i just read a a, a very good book um i've got it sitting over here um uh jing Chaping's long war um, mm. that is that is very good and it looks specifically at the chinese vietnamese war so if anybody's oh, interested in that in that little, it's like more of a reevaluation. He's a military historian, so it kind of leans on that side of it. But it was very good, um, so I would recommend people to Google that up, sure. and I'll probably put that in the show notes, even though it's kind of off topic. No, it's still relevant, and I want to point out just another aside. Benedict Anderson's Imagine Community yes. starts with that war. <laughs> You're like, that's the thing. That's the opening. He's like, yeah. you know, we have this paradigm of the Red Menace and Domino's period, but now these two Asian communist societies are fighting. Like, it just no one can process yeah. with. He opens with that. I mean, he's a Southeast Asianist, but it's anyway. Yeah. And, Just to drop some Benedict Anderson on your podcast. I mean, <laughs> that, that's going to be a drinking game. This has to be a hundred percent. Imagine communities. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but it is a foundational book for a lot mm -hmm. of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so let's go back and kind of set the table for the 
conquest of Africa, quote unquote, as it is called. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I think that there, a, I don't know that there's a whole lot of understanding of that as a, either an event or as a time frame, but also, you know, there is this sense, and there is this phenomenal quote from Bismarck to Eugene Wolf, who was a German journalist and traveler who was had been to Latin America, to Africa, and a few other places, and it was always championing for Germany to become more involved as an empire. And in a letter in 1884, uh, Bismarck wrote, your map of Africa is all very fine, but my map of Africa <laughs> yeah. lies in Europe. Here is Russia and here is France. We are in the middle. That is my map of Africa. Could you give that quote a little context? for? Yes, yeah, for sure. He says something similar to Carl Peters, the Cortez of German adventurers who's trying to convince them to annex all of East Africa, essentially. So the thing for Bismarck at that point, back in the 1870s, early 1880s, is, uh, you know, and again, I, I know people who know the German story quite well know all this, but for, for people who are just sort of getting into this, I know you have a lot of different kinds of les listeners. The German Empire had been forged at least three wars in a row that were quite violent. Each one was more violent than the previous one. And it was extremely destabilizing to the balance of power. I mean, Germany historically had been a rumble strip, essentially, not even a speed bump. It just, you just drove across it. I mean, you look at something like the Thirty Years' War, essentially it was just a battlefield that they fought upon. And so suddenly you go from either that or a multipolar situation with Prussia, the quote-unquote third Germany, you know, sort of Bavaria, Saxony, and then Austria, to suddenly this giant monolith in the center of Europe. And so Bismarck, after that third war, after the, we usually call it the Franco-Prussian War, they usually call it the German-French War, because a lot more than the Prussians are fighting that war. That's kind of the point. Anyway, yeah. after that war, Bismarck was adamant that Germany had to be a satiated power, not present a threat, be sort of a peacemaker. That's why in 1878, you know, he's sort of the big power broker when, what is that, the ninth Russo-Turkish War? I mean, when the, the Bulgarian horrors happen, you know, the yeah. Congress of Berlin. Uh, you know, at that juncture, he was trying to make Germany seem not aggressive, not like it was hungry for empire, not a threat particularly to the British. Um, so when he said that, you know, he was pointing out that, look, our foreign policy is not some bold adventuring in the tropics, which it certainly was in some ways for the French and the British. It was this really intricate, complicated, and your readers can look this up, just look up Reinsurance Treaty, Russia. So just this really complicated attempt to balance their alliance with Austria, with the French, you know, isolating France, uh, making sure they didn't alienate Russia. And, you know, he largely does it successfully. I think his internal policies are a disaster. Uh, I think he's in some ways way too lionized. I think his foreign policy was intricate and fairly successful. His domestic policy was sort of a horror show. Anyway, that's probably a different podcast. Anyway, <laughs> so he wasn't that interested in colonialism. Uh, Germany didn't really have a navy. I mean, they sort of had a brown water navy, and they were beginning to build a merchant marine. Uh, you know, they had commercial interests overseas, but that had always been true. The Germans had always been, when they were Prussian or, or Bremen, Bremers or Hamburgers, sort of... Uh, uh, like second-tier imperialist in other people's empires. So yeah. particularly in the British Empire and the James Belch book, which is amazing, Replenishing the Earth, which talks about the British yes. Empire, Great talks about all the ways that the Germans are demographically and in terms of their expertise, uh, you know, 
a reserve army, if you will, that was helping the British. I mean, most of the Forest Service tree or a good portion of the Forest Service tree in India was German. So Germans, that's one of the things that's come out in more recent scholarship. Germans are involved in the project of empire from a much earlier point. I know you at one point were writing about the Forest Republic. A lot of them are German. Mm-hmm. You know, well before Germany really has much African interest going on, they're part of Leopold's mercenary death squad that he forms. To yeah. control the Congo Basin. So Germans were involved in empire. They just didn't have a formal empire. Uh, so at that point, that made absolute sense. It was just not something that he viewed as particularly beneficial. And I think he meant it when he said it. I mean, he literally trades Uganda and surrounding territories for Heligoland, which for them was quite strategic in terms of, you know, protecting sea lanes between the Baltic and the North Sea. But, you know, Uganda, in Carl Peter's mind anyway, was this huge pearl that would have been super profitable. And ultimately it was for the British, but he just wasn't interested at that juncture. Sorry, sure. that's probably a longer answer than you wanted. But No, no. I mean, it, I'm another historian, so a long okay, answer to yeah. expect. <laughs> Thousands of years ago. Yeah, we have, this goes back to Charlemagne. No, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. So uh, evolving out of that, because at this point, I, you know, and of course you're an authority on this and I agree with you that he, he is uninterested. But then, like, within a few years, there's the Conference of Berlin, which sure. he calls. I mean, and, you you know, there are historians out there who make the argument that he's kind of manipulated into that by King Leopold of Belgium. Sure. But, you know. What happens? Like, why the turn? Uh, you know, I yeah. think we need to step down, as I know you like to, from high politics for a moment, because whatever Bismarck wants, the issue in many ways is that Germany itself, German civil society, particularly middle-class Germans, and for different reasons, some conservative Germans are really interested in empire. I think Max Fitzpatrick, who's amazing, he does uh, all kinds of work on the German empire. He has a book about liberal imperialism, even before Germany was Germany. You know, he points out that there were all kinds of interest groups and pressure groups and German middle-class, both men and women, who were interested in this idea of empire, particularly because you know, Germany throughout the 19th century, even after unification, continued to hemorrhage its sons and daughters. That was the central obsession of Hitler later. You know, essentially, yeah. Germany was hemorrhaging its sons and daughters, and they, you know, they thought that essentially, you know, Germans were making the American empire stronger, the British empire. So there was this obsession with getting control of colonies where German sons and daughters would not be lost to Germany. There were all kinds of commercial interests, whether it was merchants in Hamburg or often they were liquor manufacturers, shipping lines or firearms manufacturers. They were interested. So there was a bunch of stuff coming from below that made people interested in empire. And that's what matters. It's not that Bismarck is moving pieces on a chessboard. He realizes that empire is one of the few things that crosses party lines, to use contemporary terminology, because conservatives, for their own reasons, also because of their demographic fears, you know, they have these dreams of German greatness. Conservatives are also sort of interested in empire, even if they have a very different vision of empire than the liberals do. This is one of the few things that crosses party lines and that, you know, he thinks will win, not just with a conservative constituency, because he really shifted gears after initially being an ally of the liberals. There's this sort of second founding in 1878 where he turns on them and goes quite conservative. Part of that is the anti-socialist laws. But he realizes this is something that does play well with liberal audiences, liberal with a capital L, as it's right. middle class, bourgeois audiences. So the other thing is he's also hoping to play sort of a game where he's going to divert French interest outwards. That's in the mix a little bit. Uh, you know, the one thing consistently he tried to do was isolate France, and the more they were tied down in Africa, the better. 
So he comes around and decides that for sort of electoral reasons and to kind of throw a bone, if you will, to liberals for what he thinks is going to be relatively little cost, dot, dot, dot. You know, he had this yeah. vision of there'll be charter companies like the Hudson Bay Company. It'll be great. And that does happen. It just doesn't go well. Anyway, he, he pivots and decides that, yeah, sure, let's let's do this empire thing a little bit. And he sort of stuns people a little bit at, you know, you mentioned the, the Berlin Conference that's in the winter of 84, 85, uh, right there on Wilhelmstrasse. He, you know, not only sort of backs Leopold's claim to the basin, he's certainly not the only one, but springs this, oh, and also Cameroon and Togo and Southwest Africa, surprise anyone. <laughs> and as I said, that had very little to do with his interest in those places per se, and a lot to do with his interest in creating some sort of stable political configuration at home. And, you know, that's what Vailer, who sort of created Zonderweg, emphasized. And I think in this respect, he was quite correct. I mean, Bismarck at that juncture really was interested in domestic political configurations. Now, that didn't necessarily go for the other people interested in the empire, and it absolutely will not be the case for the regime that replaces the Bismarck regime. So Wilhelm II, I think, is interested in the empire for real. But we can yeah. talk about him more. And I'm, ah, that's a polite way to put it. He was very interested in empire. But yeah, for Bismarck, it was sort of a domestic political calculation that he thought would cost him very little in terms of blood and treasure or, or alienate anyone. I mean, he didn't have any vision of doing it on the scale that would alienate the British. Uh, most of that actually indeed is negotiated. It doesn't actually cause that much friction with them. The friction with the British is caused by other things, like the stupid battle fleet they built. But again, yeah. that, happens, yeah. that happens. That's later. So that's sort of in Bismarck's mind what's going on. And, you know, all these pressure groups get, you know, there's the colonial Verbonds, there's different ones, the pet Germans in their own way. I mean, they have mixed feelings because in many ways they feel the empire should be in Europe, which is, the, which is in many ways the connective tissue between the sort of Lebensraum idea and the imperial idea. Uh, but all of them are all in on this empire thing. They think it's great. Um, so, yeah, Germany ends up with, it's not the largest empire, but... As I said, Togo, Cameroon, German East Africa, which was not only Tanza, Tanganyika, because they didn't have Zanzibar, but Rwanda and Burundi, but then, of course, Southwest Africa, which was supposed to be the, the settlement colony par excellence. It was going to be their Texas or whatever, their California, where they were going to settle people. Uh, you know, they push into the Pacific, so Samoa, the Marshall Islands, Caroline Islands, China, they're all up in that. And Prussia had already had a sort of an enclave there, but... Uh, Qingdao is sort of that peninsula, yeah. that area, which to this day you can enjoy anytime you drink a Qingdao beer. That is a legacy oh. of that. Oh, that's where it comes from. Also, they also kind of caused the Boxer Rebellion, which I'm sure is another, another podcast. But anyway. Yeah. So, and they also had all these fantasies. Um, there's a book called Dangerous Dreams, and I apologize for breaking out the author that talks about the German fantasies from India Colony in Latin America? Question mark. I had played footsie with Mexico, which takes us to the historical documentary, The Three Amigos, which I would have pointed is actually based on a real thing. They really were all up in that. Yeah. Prior to the Zimmerman telegram, people don't realize there's a whole backstory with them meddling and interfering in the Mexican Revolution slash Civil War, which then was ongoing. They had dreams of maybe a colony in Brazil, question mark. So... I, I think that that is something that we as Americans also have no idea about. It's just how involved, well, the globe was in that Mexican Revolution in particular. Uh, because, I mean, there was a, a regiment from the Sudan who was down there fighting for the French. A hundred percent. No, I know in Chinese triads in the middle of it trying to make their way. And yeah. The Americans intervene. 
the British are worried about their love. I mean, there's yeah, you know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of good scholarship on the Mexican Revolution, and it's clear how it was also a global event and way more destructive than I think Americans real. I mean, millions oh, yeah. died in that upheaval. Yeah, I mean, to to be fair to the Americans, we were kind of occupied at the time too. So we were. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Indeed, it's a complicated story. But so the, yes. you know, the Germans had all kinds of ideas, and of course they get turned up to eleven in the matter of Spinal Tap. Once we get Wilhelm II, not just to make it about him, I think also German society as it became more prosperous, as German industrial concerns grew bigger, and sort of there was not to get into this idea of zeitgeist. But I think really, you know, I think Wilhelm II. People forget how popular he was, and the point mm-hmm. isn't that he wants. Uh, plots on Desona, a place in the sun. The point is that when he said that, for our ever-growing cross-section of Germans, mostly middle class, but not exclusively, both men and women, uh, there's a whole book called German Women for Empire by Laura uh, Gildenthal that talks about, you know, how women are part of this project and trying to instrumentalize it to their own purposes. Uh, you know, Germans were all in on this, and, and the Kaiser was sort of the first movie star in Germany, and, you know, to outsiders, he seems sort of like a psychotic buffoon and a douchebag. But to Germans, and I know some of this may sound familiar to you in our own context, you know, to a lot of Germans, he was this, he was making Germany great again. I mean, that yeah. was, uh, in many ways, I find that analogy better than the other one you sometimes Sure. Hear. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that there is something to be said for that, especially in the German and the Italian case, which I don't necessarily want to go too far down that path. Sure. But just sure, this sure. idea as junior states that, there was prestige in having empire. If they wanted to seat at the big table, they had to have one. Precisely. And I think that that, you know, that pressure that you mentioned of coming from below, a lot of that is from that, not only because you want the economic interest if you're a businessman in Hamburg or wherever, you know, you don't want this competition tapping these markets or these resources that you just don't have access to when your government should be giving you access to them in your mind. But just this whole national prestige thing that is encapsulated by that making Germany great again. Yeah, you must be this high to ride this ride. That idea of empire. I mean, Belgium has an empire. I mean, initially Leopold. Uh, And you can see that very clearly with, you know, the Americans and the Japanese. Exactly. I mean, America already has an entire continent, which I would argue is also an empire, though Americans are often not very cognizant of that. And then they decide, like, oh, but also the Philippines have really tied the rope together. So, (laughs) you know, I mean, this leap into imperialism, which happens literally seconds after Turner's proverbial closing of the frontier. What is that supposed to be? 1892. And already in 1898, we're off gallivanting into the Caribbean and the Pacific. And Japan as well, with the maneuvers in Korea, Manchuria. I mean, Japan very quickly, even in its liberal-ish Meiji configuration, is very interested. It feels it will be taken more seriously if it has an empire. Uh, I'm not sure that quite plays out, given how they're treated at Versailles. But, yeah, yeah, that was that was sort of considered almost the baseline. I mean, given the British Empire or the British nation state was, if you can call it that, the British imperial configuration, we'll call it that, was the sort of model for everyone. I mean, it was the sun or the center of the global system universe of the 19th and early 20th century. How could you not want that? Right. I mean, the answer is easy. It was horrible for people on the ground. But, you yeah, know. Well, I mean. Business very rarely cares about that now. Much less <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Probably even less than in some ways. Yeah. It's not like they were getting cell phone footage of Sudanese people gutting people down as they spread the Anglo-Egyptian yeah. condominium. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> so let's talk a little bit about and switch gears from Germany uh, and talk about the situation in Africa prior to the colonial moment for the Germans in these places. For sure. The... One of the things I always point out, and, you know, I know it's just a number, but, you know, in 1870, 
Africa, which I'm going to point out is 3.8 times the size of the continental U.S. It's yeah. an enormous piece of space. Just Congo, as it's constructed now, is as large as the entire U.S. east of the Mississippi. So it's a huge space. But that space, as of 1870, so just before the events we were talking about a moment ago, is only 5% controlled, in big air quotes, controlled by Europeans. So they have a toehold in Algeria, that's the French thing. There are these coastal enclaves in West Africa. There's the Portuguese uh, thing, which in many ways was at least as much indigenous as it was Portuguese in Mozambique and Angola. And then finally, of course, there was the Cape Colony and all the sort of fragmented European-created institutions in South Africa. But that was it. It was 5% of the continent. If we fast forward to 1914... The continent, at least in terms of formal claims, and I say that with a lot of you know disclaimers and there'd be an asterisk, but formally the continent is 95% controlled by Europeans basically two generations later. That is a stunning, yeah. one of the most rapid transfers of at least formal sovereignty in the history of the world. I mean, it's like Mongol grade. I mean, it's not a single <laughs> army, obviously, sure. but in terms of the space. Uh, so the thing is, you know, and I'm literally I'm about to teach the Modern Africa course again this spring, which I don't start with colonialism. The course used to start that way. I start essentially in the early 19th century on purpose mm-hmm. because I feel like we have to be really careful teaching, I would say, any history, even Europe's history, but particularly history of Africa or Asia using European chronologies. And that, like, history, 1870, history begins. Like, no, it right. doesn't. You know, Africa to sort of get to your question, to circle back to what you actually asked me. You know, Africa in the 19th century, it was an enormous space, and so I hesitate to generalize, but it was in various places to varying degrees in the full throes of a commercial revolution. So whether it was, uh, you know, the stuff that's coming out of East Africa, so there's a lot of great literature, like Domesticating the World by Jeremy Presthold about Zanzibar as an as a economic phenomenon and as a consumer, uh, you know, in many ways in terms of trade, actually in their favor. Uh, and that book is amazing, talks about, uh, you know, takes East Africa sort of seriously as part of the world economy. Or, you know, with the end of slavery, we have this quick turn towards quote-unquote legitimate commerce where societies like Ashante are creating indigenous plantation economies to feed palm oil into the maw of the Industrial Revolution. That was one of the primary lubricants that made those machines work at all. Uh, and there's a lot on that. In, I'm just going to keep book dropping Abina and the Important Men. That was amazing. That graphic yes, history talks about this whole configuration of slavery ending, but not really, because of palm oil. Uh, you know, North Africa, of course, you know, most of it is controlled by the Ottomans. That's the thing. In 1870, the largest imperial power in Africa is the Ottoman Empire. By a huge margin, but as you know, you used to study Egypt, it is that power is really sort of fragmenting and waning, but the, yeah. there's all kinds of commercial connections there. Uh, so, you know, Africa is very much part of the wider world, far more than I think people understand. The history does not begin with colonials. In some ways, I would argue history ends. I mean, that's <laughs> things are put sort of in a freezer for a while. Uh, and, you know, there's literature relatively recently, Paul Lovejoy's book about how the jihadi revolutions in West Africa, he actually connects to the Islamic revolutions, which I find very fascinating. He argues, Mm. you know, we talk about Haiti, Latin America, the United States, but also there's these, you know, this massive upheaval, Usmanto Fodio and the creation of Sokoto, something similar happening in terms of the Tugalors, so these sort of so-called jihad states, as they're often called. So there's revolutionary transformation happening in the sort of Sahel and Savannah portions of West Africa. Um, yeah, there's a whole lot going on. 
you know, that's the exact period where the Rwandan monarchy is getting bigger and bigger and more powerful. It's engaging in its conquest. You know, Shaga Zulu and all the, the construction of the Zulu state and the Mfatane, the so-called scattering of populations that creates that sort of diaspora of both humans, but also military expertise. I could go on and on and on. The point is, an enormous amount is going on on the ground that has, you know, it's connected to wider events, but it's not being caused by Europeans at all. Uh, right. Anyways, they're peripheral players. You know, prior to quinine and the sort of medical revolution of the mid-19th century, Europeans could barely even spend time there. There's this amazing dialogue where an East African's talking to a German, and he says, Germany must be really terrible, or Europe in general, Udiah, because you keep coming here even though our climate kills you. <laughs> so they just, you know, the Europeans, for medical reasons and a hundred other reasons, were relatively marginal actors. And even when they were there, they were often plugging into pre-existing networks. You know, in East Africa, that's the one I know best. You know, the Germans essentially kind of become the new quote-unquote Arabs, as the Europeans refer to the Swahili-speaking elite that's backed by Zanzibar. Uh, so, yeah, that's the situation on the ground. You know, there's some European commercial interests. They're very interested in the products coming out of Africa, but they're incredibly thin and weak on the ground. African armies were extremely capable of defending themselves. African navies were quite dangerous. I mean, they were brownwater navies, but they were you know, has been had been proven during the slavery era quite capable of defending themselves. Uh, now things will, of course, change very rapidly. I, I, I really do, when I teach this, emphasize the local is in many ways paramount, you know, which is why I'm a little hesitant to summarize what's going on everywhere. But uh, Europeans are marginal figures in the 1850s, 60s, early 70s. Who? I mean, if they've heard of them at all, they're, uh, you know, those people that bring fabric we only sort of kind of like. <laughs> Jeremy, exactly. Pre Jeremy Pressall talks a lot about this. It's pretty amazing. So, uh, yeah. So that's the situation before the so-called scramble is one of incredible complexity and transformation. Yes. So uh, let's move on to the German-specific um, colonial holdings within Africa. Um, and I don't know whether you want to start with East Africa or Southwest Africa, but how did the... German, well, how did the mothership land, for lack of a better term? How, how did that even into... happen? For yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, usually people only talk about Southwest Africa, so I will talk about it first. And, and originally, that's what I worked on. That's what had gotten me into the, you know, the Herero Nama genocide is what had sort of alerted me to the topic. It's what I've begun with, and something I've tried to engage with since my master's was about uh, German Southwest Africa. So in that case, it's largely missionary interests. Okay. So, and that's not uncommon in the history of imperialism. Yeah, no, no. Missionaries who were on the ground argue that local disturbances in terms of Herero, Nama, group fighting. They need the German military to intervene to protect them. And, you know, they make all kinds of claims about how, you know, showing the flag here will increase our prestige and, and allow us to engage in our, you know, mission to spread the Holy Gospel. Never mind if these people were Christian already to varying degrees, uh, because Christianity had percolated north from the Cape Colony, you know, starting back in the 18th century. Anyway, so... Uh, that, that was sort of the initial impetus, and, you know, they sent Hermann Goering's father, which people yeah. talk a lot about, is the, uh, you know, the first governor, and the Germans, uh, you know, they don't really send a lot of people, and initially it really doesn't go very well, I mean, they're, you know, sucked into a war almost immediately, uh, I began, you know, messing in indigenous politics, uh, and that's, you know, that's what causes a lot of the problems later, you know, they help, and this is, again, not the tale is old as time in terms of empire. They meddle in the succession 
to the paramount chieftaincy of the Herero, and Samuel Maherero partially via his relationship with the Germans gets that position. And, you know, the Germans begin leaning on him more and more heavily and sort of bribing him essentially with money and alcohol to turn over more and more land to settlers, because that's the fantasy, that's the dream for Deutsch-Südwest, that it will become a German settlement colony. It is essentially malaria-free. Uh, it's quite dry. It's one of the driest places in the world, but at least it doesn't have malaria. So the white man and later the white woman could actually live there without expiring immediately. And there was pasture land, et cetera, et cetera. This was the idea. Uh, and so that's how they end up there. And as I said, from the very beginning, it's pretty messy. And we'll, as we, you know, intimated at the beginning of this podcast, culminate in genocide. So in the case of East Africa, that really begins with Carl Peters. So who's sort of the Stanley of German East Africa. You know, he's this adventurer who fancies himself Cortez, who marches around making claims. There's also commercial interests in East Africa that begin lobbying the German government. So uh, this thing called the Deutsche Osafrikanische Gesellschaft, DOAG, the German East Africa Corporation or Society, is chartered and given Bismarck's blessing to start achieving commercial penetration. So initially it's a commercial venture exclusively, supposedly. Uh, that goes very pear-shaped almost immediately. Uh, Jonathan Glassman's Feast and Riot does a really great job talking about this period where the Germans first arrive and immediately offend everyone in a hundred different ways. So Zelensky, uh, who is the person that the Germans put in charge, or the Doog puts in charge of this, walks into a mosque during Friday prayers with his dogs and his muddy boots, then oh walks outside and pulls down the Earth's flag and puts up the German flag, and just, just immediately starts this colossal rebellion that, of course, the Germans respond to with tremendous violence. Uh, and in that case, a guy named Visman, who comes in and out of East African history, gathers up a force of mercenaries from all over the best places. Like he goes to Cairo, he's intersects with your work, and hires a bunch of Sudanese troops who have been booted out by the Mahdi because they're yeah. just sitting around in Cairo getting wasted. Uh, he goes to Eritrea, hires some Askari there. So the Visman Truppe puts this rebellion down. Glassman talks about all the reasons that the Swahili elite itself quickly comes to negotiate because they realize that social pressure from below is in danger of washing them away. So they need to end this as soon as possible. But this, of course, bankrupts Doag. And so here, as in other places, to much to Bismarck's chagrin, the German state intervenes and makes it a formal colony. Uh, so that's the sorted and not at all what Bismarck wanted way they get into those two locations. To make a right. long story short. So sure. you break, you buy. So <laughs> at that point, uh, they, you know, try to take possession of both those places. Though I'd like to argue that in neither case is German sovereignty really accepted. Uh, I think Samuel Maharero just views them kind of as an ally. Banama, I don't think really accept their sovereignty almost at all. And in yeah. East Africa, you know, the Swahili elite subordinates itself really for internal political reasons to the Germans, and that relationship becomes quite cozy. But uh, most of the colony, what's a German? I mean, the Hey Hey, who I worked on, that's what my first book was about, they don't give a damn about mm -hmm. the, the Wadachi, as they called them. And so uh, they're not super impressed, and we can talk about that if you want. I mean, that's my, my book talks about the period right after the so-called Arab the Arab uprising, again, Arab in air quotes, the yeah. Hey Hey War, which was incredibly destructive and awful. But, you know, I don't I don't think Hey Hey and most people in the Southern Highlands accepted German sovereignty until well into the 1890s. 
I mean, it exists yeah. in the Germans' minds, but, you know, and, and we could go even, if we wanted to talk about other colonies in parts of the Congo Basin or in Sudan, I don't think sovereignty was accepted, if it even was ever, until like the 20s and 30s. I mean, it takes a lot yeah. longer, Darfur, I mean, it takes a lot longer than I think a map showing colonial borders in 1914 even remotely gets across. That's something that I think a lot of people don't realize. They see, and I mean, uh, part of that might be on us as educators, but I think oftentimes when we show maps that have dates on them, you know, even if you talk about from the American case, I got into a little bit of a, a thing on Twitter with some fellow Americanists because they were showing somebody had posted a meme that said, oh, it wasn't stolen. It was conquered. And, you know, that's worse. Right. And then somebody's like, well, we purchased this territory from France <laughs> and all this other stuff. And I was like, you know, there were still people who were living there who weren't French subjects that we had to subjugate or move for it to really become. Oh, yeah. So it's not really, you know, it, it, just because we bought it doesn't make it any better. Um, oh god no and it didn't mean much on the ground i mean there's exactly. tons of that in the scramble this is yeah. now italy okay prove it <laughs> yeah i mean what's, what's ethiopia italy? ethiopia was claimed by italy and then yeah. uh you know <laughs> they're booted out and they claim it again even harder yeah so yeah that's I, i'm very wary of that narrative uh, you know just because i work precisely in colonial warfare and these issues of sovereignty and and, and yeah. local politics and a lot of what the Germans and other Europeans call rebellions, they're not rebellions at all. I mean, right. they're literally oh, essentially not. wars. Yeah. Yeah. How is it a rebellion when you weren't ever a thing there until yeah, two minutes that, ago? That. That's certainly um, how Africans feel about it. So. Yeah. And I think, that, you know, when we're dropping books, I want to mention Violet Intermediaries by Michelle. 100%. Yeah, um, I, love, I love Michelle. Yeah, no, she does amazing work. I was in a fellowship program with her in Berlin. Yeah, that book is amazing. In yeah. terms of talking about all the ways that African populations of diverse origins have their own reasons to participate in this project right. uh, that may or may not have lined up with German priorities. Sure, I mean, it lined no, up I mean, enough that it lined up enough that they could conquer the place. But, you know, Africans are not their playthings. They're not toys. No, not at all. And, you know, and we when we talk about the, the European subjugation, it, it is true that you, a lot of that is coming down from the top. But we have to talk about this intermediary class because. These armies are not full of German soldiers. They're, no. they're full of like these, uh, you know, Sudanese former members of the uh, Anglo-Egyptian army or the modest army or uh, even uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there are some people pushed up by the Zulu who are participating in the Ascari as well. So, yeah, they're the, that Mfetane diaspora. I mean, the Hey Hey are a Mfetane state. In some ways, the northernmost extent of that. But uh, yeah. yeah, I, you know, and this this came up both in my first book and just in what I, you know, what I've done since then. Uh, I feel that the that is sort of the story. I mean, that's most obvious in a place like Rwanda. I mean, yeah. in the case of Rwanda or Morocco, which is what one of the things that Fitzpatrick is working on right now. You know, but but you know, in the case of Rwanda, it's way in the interior. The Germans are even thinner on the ground there, and the Rwandan monarchy does not like uh, you know they appreciate german assistance such as it is but ultimately they have their completely their own agenda and you know as much as people talk about the germans they have direct rule and the british have indirect rule not in rwanda in rwanda they essentially cozy up to the monarchy and power to do essentially whatever it wants sure um you know and i could tell you that story again just i'll lean into east africa because it's the one i know best uh, you know, you have the Sudanese who, as you point out initially, are sort of foreign mercenaries, whatever foreign means in this context. But very quickly, it transitions to indigenous populations like the Miamwezi, who used to be porters, but now they're like, well, I used to be this, now I'll do this. And after the Hay are defeated, 
you know, they're not allowed to wage war for their own reasons, so some of them become Ascari. So, uh, you know, for them, it's a question of prestige. They get to engage in plunder. It's certainly better to be the oppressor than to be the oppressed. Uh, and, you know, I, I caution students to, and I know you wouldn't do this, but, no, because they repress their own people. What does that even mean? Like, in this context, yeah. as diverse as the situation was, identities were fairly local. I mean, depending on how you define local, I mean, hey, polity is quite large, but they certainly didn't have some notion of Africanness. I mean, that's really a right. creation of the African diaspora in the 20th century, when you get to things like Garveyism or, or Nkrumah, you know, negritude. Sure. So yes, that, that, that will come later, at least to African intellectuals, but identities are quite local, as I would argue they kind of are in most of Europe. I don't think that's unique. But, uh, you know, for these intermediaries, and then you have the Swahili elite, Jan Georg Deutsch's book points out that the Germans kind of accidentally forget to abolish slavery. Whoops. Yes. Oops. So, and that's one of my responses to that thing. You tweeted at me, that guy who's like, no, but they did so many good things. They don't even pretend to abolish yeah. slavery. I mean, yeah. at least the British, again, Abina, pretends that slavery is illegal in the Gold Coast or wherever, or India for that matter. But mm. yeah, right. the Germans have this cozy relationship with the Swahili speaking Arab, air quotes, so many air quotes in this podcast, Arab elite, uh, you know, which works great for both of them. It doesn't really work that great for anybody else. But, uh, you know, that class and, and the Germans, I have a lot of cases, you know, I talk about this in that book where they're, the Germans are trying to decide, like, am I using you right now or are you using me? And I would say my answer is yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, the Germans occasionally are aware that they're being manipulated. There's a whole literature about interpreters in the colonial context who are incredibly mm -hmm. powerful, mm -hmm. important intermediaries uh, in terms of their linguistic skills. And, you know, Europeans really until quite late, in some cases, never speak any of these damn languages. But so they're incredibly reliant on a whole strata of administrators and interpreters and other Africans to do anything. Uh, you know, and, and this came up in my defense of my dissertation, which became that first book, uh, Eating the Land of Nkwawa. The, uh, you know, Conrad Jarausch, the one of the other Germans at UNC, said, you know, you're really giving a lot of explanatory force to stupidity. And that's not often done in history, but I, I see what you're saying here. Yeah, the Germans are completely clueless like, two thirds of the time. Yeah. I mean, in ways that, and I learned this just reading their reports where they'd say, of course we did this, and this was part of my plan, and blah, blah, blah. I think that's part of the dynamic, not to, we don't have to go too far down this horrible rabbit hole, but Fontota in German Southwest Africa, this mm -hmm. debate about did he commit genocide or purpose, or did he kind of stumble into it? I mean, I agree with Isabel Hall in this respect. He totally screws up, and then ex post facto, like, yes, this was exactly what I wanted to happen. Okay, man. I mean, they, they have, uh, just to give you an example, oh my God. So Zalewski, the hammer, the guy who screwed up and caused the rebellion on the coast, he's the one who's delegated to take, you know, 300 or so Ascari into the interior to find the Mafiti, in air quotes. That's what he, you know, yes. people call the Mafiti our raiding caravan traffic. He's like, I'm going to take them out. So he, uh, you know, not quite to the same degree as Vule and Shanwan, as depicted in the Killer yes. Trail, blasts his way across this caravan route towards the Southern Highlands, going to community to community, quasi-plundering them, because that's how it worked. Uh, I read one German administrator who admitted, until we have a formal economy, we're basically freebooting pirates. Anyway, so they're just plundering, marching along, Stanley style. And he keeps asking people, are you the Mafiti? Are you the Mafiti? And, you know, from what people have discerned later, looking back, that seems to have just been a uh, kind of generic term for enemy. <laughs> right. So That's he's literally, so are, are you the enemy? The, no, no, they're over there. 
And so he has no idea what he's doing. He's just playing whack-a-mole with people he can't even name or identify. That and is one of my favorite parts of your book. <laughs> oh, my God. And then he just stumbles, of course, into this massive ambush that becomes their sort of little bighorn or San Luana moment yeah. where almost the entire column is wiped out. Good job, idiot. So, well, you keep I, asking for who the enemy is, you're eventually going to find them. Oh, so. you'll eventually find them. They found him. So they even knew where the machine gun was in that column. So, you know, I, Europeans have no damn clue what's going on. I think it's one of the reasons, and I say this towards the end of that book, and I'm drawing on a lot of other scholars. Uh, you know, the the Germans are so unaware. I mean, eventually they become aware of some of this, but even that is only through in local intermediaries. But they're so blithely unaware and ignorant about local political context. They're really dependent on locals to explain anything to them. And I think one of the reasons they use so much violence is precisely this problem that they, you know, have no way to actually plug in or talk to people or, you know, they can't marry, which is a huge yeah. part of local politics historically and remained a part of royal politics back in Europe. So they sort of, you know, a bullet means what it says. So I'm yeah. going to hang all these people from the chinja chinja tree, as people still call it in Bagamoyo, the slaughter tree, because that, that makes it clear that German power is a thing. If you don't obey us, you're going to hang from this tree. It means what it says. Um, so, and I agree with, I'm drawing on, there's a, a scholar called Michael Pesek who talks about this, that, you know, one of the reasons they recourse to violence so freely is their ig ignorance and sloppiness about local context. They don't understand it. And it's a shortcut, a really grotesque shortcut, but that's, that's not the only reason there's so much violence, but I think that's part of what's going on. This ignorance they have of the local situation. So yeah, I think local politics are paramount and, you know, ultimately colonialism in not to get all big history on you, we don't even have to get that scale. But, you know, colonialism doesn't actually last that long. I'm not one of those people who minimizes colonialism and don't think it's that important, though I understand that argument if we're looking at the long durée. But it really isn't that long. And, you know, only about two, three generations later, you already have different African actors who are already destroying empire. So I'm not trying to minimize the impact of colonialism, but it was you know, born of, you know, born in a situation where it needed intermediaries. And I was true to the very end. And in many cases, it's those intermediaries that destroy empire. That's precisely that group of people. You know, Gandhi is the quintessential case. You see him with his box cut in his suit, with his law freshly minted law degree from Britain. Uh, you know, Ho Chi Minh spending time in France. The picture of the founding of the French Communist Party, Ho Chi Minh is in that photo. And shows up at Versailles, like trying to get a meeting with Wilson. Uh, you know that that group of people who knew Europe best. Uh, you know Leopold Sangor. I mean, they're the ones who destroy empire. Yeah, without a doubt. So you, you mentioned it earlier. And, um, I, I do want to get to the genocide, but before we do, well, you're back. Okay. You're back. Sorry, you just went away for a second. I oh, I'm sorry. Um, well. You, you, you touched on it earlier, and I do want to get to the genocide, but before we do, can you, you speak to the difference between, for, for people who aren't specialists in the region, the difference between the Heihei Rebellion you were just talking about and the Mahi Mahi Rebellion that occurs not that far after? So, okay. Uh, Maji Maji, I'll just talk about it first, just because we were just talking about East Africa. Maji Maji, there's an enormous literature on this by people like Jamie Monson, Thaddeus Sonseri, uh, Michelle Moyd has written a lot about it. I could go on and on and on. The original Terrence Ranger stuff, scholarship back in the 60s, and, you know, I left John Iliff's work on primary versus secondary resistance really looked at Maji Maji. 
Uh, the Munchy Munchy Oral History Project that they helped with gathered an enormous amount of data from people who lived through it. Anyway, it's uh, one of the best studied, I think, cases. Uh, Munchy Munchy is largely caused by a combination of sort of ecological catastrophe. So Sari talks about that a lot. And then there's the Germans, again, ham-fisted, clumsy attempt to impose forced cotton cultivation. Like, what are we, Portuguese East Africa? Anyway, they, <laughs> they try to impose cotton cultivation. Uh, you know, they forbid the shooting of animals, which leads to animals marauding and the spread of tsetse fly. Um, you know, they disrupt local political contexts. And then finally, this prophet, Kajikitile, um, which uh, Michelle Boyd is in the middle of a project that's really doubling down on that. You know, her first, or not first, but uh, her last book looked at sort of perpetrators and colonial allies. And now she's sort of really flip that narrative. I heard her talk about it at the German Studies Association. So Kajikatile, this prophet figure, had this sort of messianic ideology, not unlike the ghost dance in America, that was supposed to unite people across sort of ethnic, linguistic, geographic lines. And, uh, you know, claimed that this medicine would uh, turn German bullets into water, hence Maji Maji, water, water. So, you know, this rebellion, which in many ways I think had been a long time coming, lights up in almost the entire southern third of the colony. Uh, the Germans are completely freaked out. They're almost kicked out entirely out of that portion of the colony, which I want to point out is over twice the size of the German Reich, by the way. Just East Africa. Yeah, dude. The spatial relations are vast. So, you know, the Germans, through a combination of leaning on local proxies and allies and deploying some forces from the Reich, most of it's, you know, indigenous, it's Ascari and, and auxiliaries, wage a pretty grotesque, even by colonial standards, scorched earth campaign where they are torching fields, destroying villages. Governor Liebert, who had been the governor a bit before this back, he'd been the one who drafted up the hay war, had very, been very explicit that fire is your best friend. Africans fight on their stomachs, so if they can't eat, they can't fight. Uh, the German, the military manual created by a guy named Nigman in 1911, uh, you know, after this was very clear that famine and fire were deliberate weapons of war in a situation where you are numbered by 10 to 1, 100 to 1. I mean, it depended. So essentially, they quasi on purpose caused a famine that probably killed 120, 150, 200, 300,000, some grotesque number in the six, low six figures, people that mostly starved to death or die from disease from this rebellion, uh, completely shatters resistance, at least for a while in that part of the colony. Now, this is a huge scandal, as is the Herrero debacle, which we can talk about in a second. It's one of the things that provokes the Germans to pivot to so-called scientific colonialism, which that, again, that author on Twitter tried to say, see, the Germans were trying to invest in schools and science. Okay, man. Yeah. I only do this after a massive cluster F that nearly destroys their authority in not one but two colonies. So that's what's going on, in, and that's in 1905 to 1907 is how long that goes on. Uh, Southwest Africa, which is probably more well-known because, well, for a variety of reasons, it's probably at least proportionally even more violent and represents the introduction of the Konzentrationslager, the concentration camp, to both the German language and German administrative praxis. In that case, uh, a little bit earlier, so Rinderpest is a huge part of the story, so this cattle plague brought inadvertently by the Italians when they invaded Ethiopia. See, all this shit is connected. So uh, so it makes its way, sort of scorches through eastern and southern Africa. So Herrero herds, which was this really the primary means of accumulating and storing wealth in that society, and it was a pastoral society, completely almost wiped out. Herds 
just devastated. Many Hero had to go into, you know, extreme debt, and German merchants took advantage of them. So that's really when the expropriation of Herero land, Herero assets, really speeds up quite dramatically. German settlers commit terrible acts of, of often sexual violence. There are all kinds of sensational rapes that occur, and the judicial system there doesn't even, essentially doesn't even let Africans testify at all. Their testimony essentially means nothing uh, if it comes to a court case at all. This goes as far as sometimes murders. So, you know, this whole range of abuses that sadly I think are quite typical for settler colonialism, you know, this dynamic yeah. expropriation, sexual assault and, and violence means that the Herero by like late 03 are putting tremendous pressure on Samuel Maherero to do something. And that dynamic can also played on Maji Maji. Like, are you going to do something about this or do we need to overthrow you? Which is one of the reasons a lot of traditional elites had backed the messianic cult. I mean, they're really freaked out by it. Yeah. Uh, but they don't feel they have much of a choice. Anyway, back to Southwest Africa. And now there's a huge dispute. You know, Jan Bart Gewalt says that the Herero didn't actually intend to revolt and that a German lieutenant named Zern, I believe is his name, sort of quasi-provokes it. There's a dispute in the literature a bit about how this plays out. But uh, most scholars do say that the Herero essentially made a decision to rise in revolt and try and eject the Germans. And they do that. That's in January 1904. Uh, and in doing so, they spare non Germans and try and almost wholly succeed to spare women and children, but they do put a number of German men to death. Uh, back in Germany, of course, immediately there are these sensational stories of mutilations and rape and black horrors, stuff that would be very familiar to anyone who knows about lynching col culture and, you know, that sort of stuff in the same yeah. period in the United States. You know, it's hypersexualized. Africans are beasts. And so, uh, if anything, that case, I think one of the reasons it's more well known is that's a case where really because I think it's climactically feasible, the Germans actually send a substantial army from the metropole, which did not really happen in most cases because that was medically and demographically not a good idea. So this guy von Trotha, Lothar von Trotha, the most German named man ever, <laughs> Lothar of the Hill people, you know, before he's even there, he's already rambling about how he's going to put this in order. It sounds like they're running around like a bunch of rats and blah, blah. I mean, he's not even there yet. He's engaging in all kinds of violent hyper rhetorical sort of hyperbole. Right. He gets there. Lloyd Vine, who's the governor, says like, well, yeah, I mean, I really want to get this in hand, but we need to maybe negotiate. Or, you know, he, I don't want to romanticize Lloyd Vine. He was quite bureaucratic and viewed himself as like a holy Roman emperor in an African context. But he certainly didn't want to exterminate them all. I mean, that was just not where his head was at. And I'm not even sure, sure Tota thought that explicitly, but Tota was absolutely willing to use extreme violence. And when, you know, the Herero retreat to the Vaterberg, this, you know, place where there was water on the edge of the Omaheke, Omaheke Desert, which is one of the driest places in the world. I mean, in that desert in coastal Chile, basically. Um, it's part of sort of the Namib Desert, that wider desert in southwestern Africa. Uh, this is one of the things that, as I said, Isabel Hall, this, this goes back and forth. Did Trota drive them to the desert on purpose? He ultimately says yes. And indeed, that's what the general report, general staff report of all this says. Isabel Hall says, no, he screwed up. Like he tried to encircle and destroy them. Not great either, by the way. I mean, no, not ultimately, it's not an argument that he wanted to spare them. He wanted to, you know, kill them in a stand-up way by shooting and bayoneting them all, but screwed up and left the southeastern corner of the cordon too weak and the hero break out and gush into the desert whether it's on purpose or not after that happens trota of course seals the desert and begins patrolling and poisoning water holes 
and banning and shooting anybody that comes out. Uh, this very quickly gets back to Germany. One of the reasons the German colonies generate so much heat, quote unquote, rather than light, is it was one of the only empires where the legislature got to debate each colony's budget every single year. And so it was one of the few places the Reichstag could really get traction. And of course, the Reichstag at that point, August Babel and the SPD, the Social Democrats, who really hated the government for a lot of reasons. You know, they had been illegal not long before this, essentially quasi-illegal. The Socialists made enormous mileage out of raking the government through the coals. You know, this is von Bülow's chancellorship. You know, Babel gets up there and says, you know, just like we heard during the Boxer Rebellion, another giant bloodbath that the Germans are part of, yeah. you know, we're hearing that all prisoners are being killed. What the hell is this? I thought we were civilizing these people, which the SVD kind of believe is a thing. That could be a different podcast. Socialism and imperialism, that complicated relationship. But anyway, Without a doubt. He, he, yeah, he, he basically calls them out for this. Uh, the entire, essentially the election of 1907, the so-called hot and taut, and I want to barf even using that word. It's still a word in German. It's an epithet for so-called Bush people. The hot and taut election of 1907 turns around this issue of the SPD's disloyalty to the government in raising funds for this war and also anti-Semitism. Yay. It's the only vote in which the SPD loses votes between the 1890s and mm. the end of the Kaiserreich. It's the only time they lose votes because the right in Germany plays the imperial card and plays the anti-Semitism card. So it has a huge effect on German politics there. So back in Africa, finally, von Schlieffen, yes, that Schlieffen, the Schlieffen plan, he's head of the general staff. And the Kaiser, who initially backed Quota, say, okay, fine, I guess he shouldn't just murder everyone. Things had really escalated when the Nama, who initially had been all in on this, they were, in this occasion, fighting with the Germans. Last time they had fought against them. Uh, a rise in revolt partially out of their horror at how the Germans were conducting the war. So the war gets even worse. So now two of the two, two of the three largest populations in the colony are revolting against them. They impress on Trote, you need to scale this back. You need to power this down. And so his, his concession is to take survivors and rather than just murdering them outright, which is essentially what they were doing, uh, which they quasi admit in the so-called shooting order. Uh, the, they put them in internment facilities on the coast or sometimes offshore called Concentrationslager, a term they borrow from the British internment camps of the South Africa War that had happened just a little bit earlier. Uh, and the deaths continue in captivity. Trotha is eventually recalled, though he is given the pour le mérite, the, like, the highest honor you can bestow on a commander. So it's not like he's punished. And subsequent commanders essentially continue the war because the Nama fight on until almost, I think it's 1908 is how long the Nama fight a guerrilla war where they're running back and forth across the border. Uh, my friend Adam Blackler, who's amazing, he's one of my co-authors, editors of the book I'm working on now. He writes a lot about Hendrik Fitbui and that whole that whole period. So, you know, I mean, essentially, the Germans commit genocide. I, I think that just the math itself, and we could yeah. dispute this. That's uh, Genocide apologists are like, well, it was only 70,000. It was only 50. What we do know is that the Herero and Nama populations would plummet. Uh, and you get different figures. I mean, essentially, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, depending on your math percent of those populations, is, is wiped out. Now, they do survive. And there's a whole literature about how first in the camps and then afterward they reconstruct their societies. Uh, I don't want this to be purely a victim narrative. Uh, they do survive it, barely, somehow, and construct a whole new identity that uh, is quite complicated and interesting. The Herero march in military, German military uniforms once a year. 
There's this whole, yeah, it's, there's, yes, it's a, it's a complicated thing. But, I mean, essentially, they commit genocide and nearly wipe out these two populations. Paul, Paul von Horbach, the settler commissioner uh, mm-hmm. in southwest Africa, complains, you know, the colony's assets are its land, its cattle, and its people, and we've basically wiped out two out of three. Yeah. He's, like, lamenting that we've yeah. completely screwed the pooch and yeah. wasted this place. So uh, that's, that's that story. Well, and uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I want to interject here, and because we've alluded to it a couple of times, but this statement by uh, Dr. Bruce Gilley, professor That's of political it. science at Portland State University, yep. um, last well in 2017, he released a essay called "The Case for Colonialism." To be completely honest, I have not read that, um, but the reason that I tweeted it out and got David's response on it. And I want to bring it up here is because on the 11th of this month, we are recording this today on the 17th of December. On December 11th, he gave a statement before the Bundestag in our Bundestag in Germany. He sure and did. I, I, I don't want to read the entire thing, but there are a couple uh, of pieces I want to pull out real quick and then get uh-huh. your response to. For sure. And I do owe you some tweets about that, but let's do this now. Go ahead. <laughs> yes. Um, the first uh, is the second paragraph. I am not a historian, much less a historian of colonialism. That I shows. Parenthetically, that, that, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Sorry. I can tell. Yeah. I am a social scientist. I have come to the conclusion that very little history on German colonialism meets the most basic standards of social scientific research as normally understood. It is ideologically based and often self-contradictory. So my main qualification for writing about German colonial history is that I am not a historian of German colonialism. Uh-huh. Uh, I would add there that he seems to be, just from some other stuff in there, his work is also ideological because he seems to be an art capitalist. Um, oh, for sure. Against any uh, attempt to apply humanism or socialism to the, the humanities. Um, I go on, though. Let's start with German Southwest Africa, Namibia, and parts of present day Botswana. Because unless we can put this head on and get it right, which he doesn't, everything we say about the rest of German colonialism will always come with a repost well, what about the Herero? Well, what about the Herero? First, let us remind ourselves that the Southwest Africa was about 2% of the German colonial population measured in terms of people, years. Just logically, imagine we conclude that Germany did a really horrible job with that 2%, which as we've just heard they did, and a superb job with the other 98%, which we've heard they didn't. What would our overall conclusion about German colonialism be? And I honestly uh, think that that, yeah. that is uh, something that – and I've even heard it in discussions. I, I don't want to – well, I do kind of, but putting this guy's argument aside for the moment, we often hear about this with enough historical distance about other things. Uh, you had mentioned earlier just the sheer scope of the Mongol invasion um, when talking about the conquest of Africa. And there is a, a trend of scholarship that talks about that as the brush fire that cleared away for modernization and the opening up of these trade lanes for the uh-huh. passage of ideas and everything, despite the fact that the Mongols are leaving pyramids sure. of schools outside of towns and just completely eradicating entire, oh, yeah. you know. That's the Weatherford argument. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. yeah, exactly. Um, so I do think that we are approaching a point where these things are going to be looked at that, and it does kind of make me wonder what is going to happen, because I've heard similar arguments be made about the Nazi regime and breaking up Europe. You know, oh, I have to. Aaron Neil so, Ferguson about the British Empire. Right, exactly. Yes. Slightly less creepy, but still not okay. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, where, where do you even start? Do you want me to comment now, or are you just going to keep? Yeah, you can go ahead. Dumbassery. He has to say, "Look, okay, I share, and this maybe this alone." The uh, yeah, I, I myself have argued that I think German Southwest Africa is perhaps overemphasized. It, it's so appalling, and people want to create sort of a teleology of German, you know, malevolence. It, it fits that narrative. Uh, yeah. So in that respect, I think we should be advised before we take that to be the whole German imperial experience. But guess what? The rest of the imperial experience was super creepy and messed up. That's the thing. I mean, the, the idea that the other 98% was fine is ludicrous. Given what I just told you about Maji Maji. I could tell you a similar story about some of the stuff that happens in the Pacific, Cameroon. There were some, there were some incredibly violent wars initially, and then revolts that they crush. The way the Germans fight World War One in Africa is appallingly murderous. I mean, they essentially use it as a battlefield. And I know Leto Forbeck is sort of a hero of the right, but he was a monster. And I mean, yeah. hundreds of thousands of people die because of the decision to fight and the way that that war was fought during the First World War. Famine breaks out in Rwanda that kills hundreds of thousands of people. It's insane. I mean, the German Empire begins in a bloodbath and ends in one. So, uh, and I agree. I'm the, one of the first people to say empire was a lot of things more than violence. It was intermediaries, as you're talking about. It was cultural change, uh, a lot of which was coming from Africans themselves. But, you know, ultimately, violence was constitutive of empire. It's what it allowed it to form. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that when that force ceases to work, the empires dissolve. I mean, the final arbiter, and, you know, I think Orwell says this kind of in Burmese days. Like ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the 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 stick that's making all of this possible. Uh, and you know, this argument that it cleared away cobwebs and allowed commercialization—that was already underway, as we were talking about. You know, when you were we were talking about the nineteenth century, there was already a commercial revolution happening. There were a million other ways. Africa could have been incorporated in the global economy that didn't involve giant heaps of corpses and the establishment of formal sovereignty. Indeed, you know, America in the sort of latter of the 20th century pioneers a model where they don't take formal colonial control. It has its right. own problems. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea that that was the only way that was going to happen, I think, is very ahistorical and ignores contingency and is quite teleological. But, you know, I agree with you. He's an ardent capitalist. Fine. Sure. Though I don't think he's very transparent about that fact. And so he thinks because they impose capitalism, it's fine. You know, the stuff he says about scientific colonialism, we'll never know. It barely is off the ground. What I will tell you is I talked to people who remembered the Germans and definitely people whose parents remembered the Germans. Uh, you know, this was back in 05, so they were quite old. And every single one of them said, yeah, the Germans, man, they were really great at building. Like they built that over there and it's still standing, but they were horribly cruel. Like that yeah. was almost universally like, yes, Great at building, yes, some development happened, particularly compared to the British period later, where it was a mandate and it was sort of neglected, but they were horrendously violent. You know, just a uh, local context matters. And one of the things I collected when I was there was nicknames of Germans, because like in the camps uh, later in the 40s, where the inmates didn't really know the names of the Germans necessarily, the Tanzanians, or then whatever they were, Heye or, or Sangu, they didn't know the Germans' names, so they made them up. So I already told you Zaleski was the hammer, Wananyundo. Uh, another guy, uh, Fun Prince, was called Wanasakarani, Lord Drunkard, which he argues, they call me this because of the drunkard theory. I threw myself my enemies. Having read his wife's memoir, I don't think that's what they were talking about. There was Lord Bamu Bamu, Lord Machine Gun was his name. Wanafisi, uh, so he was up in Arusha, Lord Hyena. And my favorite was the labor commissioner in Arusha. They called He Who Whips Even the Dead. Was wow. his name. 
So, and this had been maintained in cultural memory that I was talking to Tanzanians about in 2005. Right. So, you know, a century later. So, yes, imperialism is a lot of things. It's not merely genocide. It's because, again, I don't want to, this is what I was saying about the Herrera moment ago, that you can fall into sort of victimology and uh, I'm not taking anything away from the horror of it. Absolutely, in my opinion, it was a genocide, but they do survive it and make some meaning of it. And that community goes on. And, you know, Africans, as we talked about earlier, and we talked about intermediaries, were part of all of this. But, mm -hmm. you know, colonialism, in many ways, is the end of these places' history. And, and I would argue that they don't begin again until colonialism ends. Yeah. Now, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that he actually has a quote in here from somebody. Uh, where is it? Uh, Martin Ganesha, a freed slave who rose to become a senior teacher at the Lutheran Missionary School in Dar es Salaam, wrote in 1907 the Pax Germanica, which had finally settled on the area, which, quote, formerly its conditions was one of injustice, dot, dot, but now there is peace everywhere. So I wonder what he left out there. But anyway, uh, in uh -huh. quote, these terms well, enjoy... Yeah, for five minutes until then the revolt started, <laughs> and then it's bloody all over again. Anyway, sorry, sorry. Yeah, know. yeah, totally. Uh, no, the Germans enjoyed the overwhelming support of the native populations in suppressing the Maji Water Cult Rebellion in 1905 to 1907. Ugh, I don't agree with that either. When he says mm. that, most of the colony wasn't involved in it at all. So sure, mathematically, most indigenous people in East Africa were not supporting the rebellion. I'm sure a lot of them didn't even know about it. Right. And locally, it was incredibly well supported. And I swear, the the giveaway to me was the number of times he used the word native. Yeah. Over and over and over, which I know on its face just means someone from a place. I am a native of Durham, North Carolina. But it really was colonial, the colonial version of the N-word, essentially. Right. Like tribe, another word I don't use. The natives this, the natives that. The na Ugh. Yeah, a lot of the, the, the indigenous people who support the Germans in crushing the Maji Maji Rebellion, like the hey, hey had been crushed in the previous war and were turning the table on people that had helped the Germans fight them the previous time. But without understanding local politics, he has no idea yes. of any of that. Well, that's he what I was going to say, is that the local context matters so much in this. To your point, they probably, a lot of them probably didn't know exactly what was going. They just heard rumors of it. And others of them, and we, we've already established that there were indigenous collaborators, these in of course. intermediaries. So, you know... Uh, if you if you ask the to put it into another context, if you ask any of the the uh, nations that helped Cortez defeat the Aztec, you know, the three months For after sure. they defeat the Aztec, if they thought it was a bad deal, but no, they don't think it's a bad deal. So, no, oh, it's like the Narragansetts who, who helped yeah. destroy the Pequot until they in turn are deported. Yeah. No, it's 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 ludicrous. Uh, I just yeah, it's completely homogenizing that that entire experience and ignoring local politics and ignoring the enormous loss of life. I just can't. I mean, it would be like saying, you know, there were plenty of Vietnamese who supported the American intervention of Vietnam. <laughs> okay, sure, yes. Marvin yeah. officers and the guys around DM until we murder him. Sure. Right. But we also completely destroyed the plot. I mean, just what? Yeah. yeah and obviously Vietnam is an extreme case, but you could tell that same story it, about Vietnam. Though, is it really that extreme yeah, of a case? Is it, is it though? Yeah, I know. Winning hearts and minds. Wham. Yeah. It doesn't help that I just watched a bunch of documentaries about me lie because I'm a glutton for punishment. Uh, but yeah. any, uh, anyway, yes, fine, sure. India with the railways, yes, that <laughs> helped make them modern. But even that, one, I want to point out, was done to move troops. And two, yes. kills a bunch of freaking people because yes. the drainage ditches beside them spread malaria all over the country. So even, yes. even anything they can point out as a blessing was a mixed blessing and could have happened a lot of other ways.
I just don't. Uh, no, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no. Well, no. I mean, you know, I I look forward to your tweet storm. I'm going to. I was trying to get. I was trying to survive exams and have done that successfully. <laughs> so yes. Um, uh, I, I guess the other thing to mention here, and I, I don't want to get bogged down in this because this is, we could spend a, an entire podcast talking about sure. this, and it's pretty grim. It's just the whole notion of genocide. Because I do agree with you it's a genocide. I reject the claims that it can't be a genocide because it wasn't completely systematic and, you know, come down com- that it wasn't most, German most, colonial policy and blah, blah, blah. Most of them aren't. That's right. the norm, actually. But anyway, yes. Um, and the reason that I bring it up is because there's been a lot of hullabaloo in the last few months about the the U.S. acknowledging the Armenian genocide, which For I sure. also add parenthetically that we both think it's a genocide because when I was we at do. Murray State, we had a teach-in about it. Um, yeah. And, I love uh, that Erdogan is threatening. <laughs> yeah, like, I'll, I'll recognize genocide of Native Americans, and I am not the first one to say this. Good? Like, yeah. let's recognize all the genocides. This is not a threat. This is not the threat you think it is. Yeah, that's what I was, I was like. I, I wish an Erdogan would. I mean, how is that supposed to be a Please bad Please do. Thing? Great. Yeah. I, I, everyone recognize everyone's horror. I mean, that... Yeah. Oh, um, my God. But that tells you a lot about his understanding of America's understanding of America. He's right. not wrong. Right? That's right? Like, that's one of our core myths, that the Indians are sort of vanished by because, I don't know, sunlight made them evaporate or because it was dest- manifest destiny. Yes. Um, but the thing that I wanted to talk about with that is, and I, I tried looking for it and I can't find it, and I I hesitate now to say who it was, but it was one of the programs in the U.S. that has a um, program of genocide studies, and they released a thing about that. And it's this notion that the Armenian genocide is the first genocide of the 20th century mm-hmm. when, you know, the Herero happens before that and, and the controversy of that. I mean, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. it I, I, I I, not to be that guy, but I also think periodization, that's a very artificial cut Sure, yeah, no, totally. I mean, give, yeah. given the amount of genocide happening in the 19th century or the 18th, right. I mean, uh, so. uh, yeah, I don't agree with that assessment because of the Herrero case and other things going on in other colonies. I mean, good Lord. But Leopoldian thing is ongoing, and that's one of the cases. Yeah, how is that not considered one? You, uh, you and I talked, I mean, you were in the genocide class. It's one yeah. of the cases that we struggle with most because there's literally zero systemic attempt to get rid of those people. But it's a system that's utterly annihilating millions of people. I mean, the way Browning in the genocide seminar I took with him said, and not everyone liked this, he said, maybe we need to distinguish between systematic genocide and systemic genocide. That's, where that's the latter, right. that's what he said, where the latter is... Spanish in the New World uh, most of the time or, you know, what happens in Australia. Because one of the problems is using the Holocaust as a yardstick. Very few things are going to measure up to that. I think the Armenian case does. But I think a lot of the other ones are, you know, frontier violence, this whole complicated dynamic where settlers sort of have the state's help or they don't. I mean, you know, we could talk a lot about Australia, California, where people are vanishing and being murdered. But uh, you know, I feel like people set sometimes an artificial metric, like, well, unless there's an order from Adolf Hitler to kill all the Cherokee, <laughs> you know, it's, they were just moved and only some of them died and it was an accident. Okay. I mean, admittedly, that's ethnic cleansing rather than genocide, but don't brag about that either. I mean, yeah, uh, totally. and some cases in the American case are absolutely genocide, like the Yana. I mean, they're in California completely wiped out because of a state issued bounty. Well, I mean, for that, scalps, which is also going on in Texas, by the way. Yeah, but, I was about to say the Texas and the Comanche. 
<laughs> Indeed. And, and, you know, of course, people are often crossing the border and murdering Mexicans and turning in their scalps for the bounty. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think the Herrero case, but I, I just see the entire imperial era as a giant mess of genocide. That's not the only thing that's going on. You know, empire, sometimes it's a collaboration, sometimes it happens gradually. But good Lord, between Australia, what's happening on the American frontier and uh, just, uh, yeah, I can't. Now, recognizing the Armenian case as a genocide's progress, I guess it depends on no, what, totally. again, your metric is. But, you know, I think imperialism in general, uh, you know, by some figures, the death toll, particularly if you get into the Mike Davis, Lake Victorian Holocaust yes. stuff. I mean, we're talking about another world war. Or, you know, the Enzo Traverso book, uh, Origins of Nazi Violence, I believe what it's called. And he points out it's yeah. 50, 60, 70 million by the time you're done talking about Sudan, Cote d'Ivoire, Belgian Congo. I mean, holy shit. And, and admittedly, it's not all at one time, though neither was World War II. Anyway, I'm not trying to say they're analogous or positive equivalents, but the laws of life overall in terms of the global redivision of the world that created capitalism, by the way, uh, that yes. loss of life was massive, particularly if we start talking about these mega famines, which no capitalism did not cause the El Nino currents to change, so on and so forth. But as Mike Davis points out, absolutely the British imperial authorities capitalized, pun intended, upon it, and their response to it was grotesquely negligent at best and bordering on homicidal at worst. You know, yeah. like the Irish, like the famine in Ireland, but on a right. bigger the scale. The fact that the Ottoman Emperor gave more to the Irish for famine relief than the British monarch did is correct. The, the piece that always points, sticks out to me there. But no, I totally agree. I, you know, you, these things happened over long periods of time, but that doesn't diminish the astounding loss of life. And you can it's say that this colonial, this colonial violence, and I don't remember the author. And maybe you will, but there were, there's a, a historian who makes the case that the colonial violence in the periphery uh, is then brought into Europe during World War One. Oh, oh, I mean, a ton of people have argued that. I mean, that's yeah. already Fanon and M.A. Césaire. Yeah. Like, there are people, speaking of the African diaspora, you know, Martinique slash Algerian uh, and, uh, you know, these sort of intellectuals in the French Empire who argue that, you know, maybe not World War One, but Nazism is literally just colonialism come home to roost. And that's a bit of a crude rendering, but I think on the in broad brush folks is accurate. Uh, a lot of people have argued that. Yeah. Um, you know, Hannah, Hannah Arendt, in some ways, that's what our argument yeah, is. It's used in many ways as the sort of origin of this argument about imperialism's relation to totalitarianism. Uh, you know, it's most obvious with countries like, good Lord, Spain. I oh, mean, Spain yeah. literally is fighting a colonial war in the form of the Rift Rebellion that mutates into a homicidal, matricidal campaign against their own citizens when that army invades Spain. I mean, Spain to me is one of the most blatant cases of the so-called boomerang effect where colonial violence seeps up through the floorboards and then consumes everything. Yeah. Italy as well. I mean, if we're in trouble with Libya and Ethiopia. Anyway, yes. Well, I mean, uh, you can even extend that, though, to like the attempt to pacify the the southern path of Italy during the Brigantine Wars. Well, I, I would, yes, agreed. I would extend that also to, to the American case. I and mean, if you oh, look yeah. at the... Grenier first way of war, which talks about war on the frontier and the tendency to use massacre and destruction of civilians as a way of war. His argument, I agree with him, is that becomes the way we fight wars, period. Well, I mean, we're not alone in this regard, but, uh, you know, his argument is precisely that America, like the stand up fights we get into later are the exception. 
Well, I don't know. Brutal counterinsurgency stuff. That's how the tradition of warfare in American society begins. Well, I mean, there's that you can draw a direct line in the racialized violence of the Indian Wars into the Philippine campaign, into the the you know the fight against the Japanese and you mean on MacArthur's, the Pacific Front. MacArthur's like, what is it? Is his dad or his granddad? I mean, literally, yeah, people who fought in the Indian Wars fight in this war. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. totally. So, yeah, for sure. So, and, and again, I'm not saying that that's the only thing colonialism is. No, uh, but that's a big part of what it is, and it ends the same way. Not in every case, but. You know, the French kill nearly a million people in Algeria before they leave that place, but uh, completely messed up. Or just the events during the so-called Mau Mau insurgency where hundreds of thousands of people were put either in strategic hamlets or literal concentration camps. The British Gulag, as one historian called it. So, yeah. uh, you know, what his argument ignores an enormous amount of how empire was born and how it ended. He's saying sort of he's doing what other he gives other people of doing. He has an ideological bent to want to prove that the arrival of capitalism was a good thing, and so he takes a snapshot of the middle when they were sort of working okay, I guess, for some people. And that's he, you know, he's doing exactly what he accuses other people of doing in terms of taking that and having that as the stand-in for what the German Empire is. The German Empire, like any empire, is a lot of things. It's both an incredible amount of initiative and creativity happening on the ground by Africans or Asians or whoever, Pacific Islanders, and a complete horror show involving giant piles of corpses. Yeah. And I think that's probably a good quote to, to wrap this up I, I, on. <laughs> I think it is, too, and very me. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, that, that about sums it up. Giant yeah. pile of corpses. So you've alluded a couple of times to what you're currently working on. Would you like to, to share some details yeah, on that? I'd love to briefly plug that. So... Sarah Pugach, who's at uh, California State LA, and Adam Blackler, who's at the University of Wyoming, and I are working on what's called After the Imperialist Imagination, two decades of research on global Germany and its legacies. And so we're sort of riffing off of the original um, Lennox Friedrichs Meyer book, uh, The Imperialist Imagination. So that came out a little over 25 years ago. It was one of the first books to really pull in a bunch of post-colonial theory based and other discussions of the German Empire. I think it was a real turn in terms of people's awareness of, of the German Empire. And so we are just looking at what has happened in the quarter century since. You know, what's happened since the essentially uh, mid-90s, basically, yeah. uh, in terms of scholarship. And so we have stuff about Germans in Hawaii. We have stuff about Persia. Uh, I write a section about the Nazi Empire as a global phenomenon and all of the Valences, overlaps, intersections with particularly the American Empire, but not exclusively. Um, yeah, it's 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 there's a it's a lot. It was born out of a seminar that happened at the German Studies Association conference back in '15, uh, or I guess it was a roundtable then, and then turned into a seminar in '16. So we've been working on this literally for four years. Maybe we nice. have another podcast about the publication process. Oh, totally. Long, no. Yes. Uh, how long it takes, but anyway, we're finally sort of near the finishing line. And I think it's going to be a really interesting, fascinating look at how both some of the scholarship that's happened and what's changed since the, you know, little old innocent me back in the mid 90s was was sort of set onto this topic. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's with Peter Lang. So it should be coming out next year. And we're very excited about it. So it's we are ahead. getting Sarah Lennox, who was involved in the original project, is helping is writing our forward, which I love. You know, so we've we have sort of the blessing and the involvement of the original, at least some of the people from that original cohort. So that is amazing. I look forward to reading that. And yeah. I would love to have you on again to talk about the, the German empire in the world war one in Africa, and then the empire in the Nazi imagination. 
Well, I would love to talk about both those things. Yeah, we barely even got into that horrible Nazi crap. So that's. <laughs> I would love to. Let's do some more of these, Ben. Oh, you definitely. And tell us where we can find you online. I'm at um, Pizzo Historian on Twitter. That's where you can find me. Pizzo Historian. That's where you can find me. And I will put a link to that. And, of course, you can find me at Ben Dangerously also on Twitter. Um, Thank you for joining me today. And thank you for those of you who have stuck through it and listened to Evoking History. This is our first episode, uh, hopefully of many more to come. And I hope you enjoyed. Thanks for having me, Ben. (laughs) Oh, you're very welcome.